everybody. Another edition of Jamal About Sports coming to you on a Tuesday, September 10th, 2019. Kicking off the show a little digital by Joy Division. Thanks for joining us. As always, I'm your host, Jamal Hayden. We've got a big show to get to. The first football Monday of the season. Uh, the Lions doing what only the Lions can do. Some other interesting games. We've got one, two, three, four, five other games to talk about that I thought were interesting for various reasons. Uh, and we will uh, get a little bit to the Metsies uh, towards the tail end of the show. But we do begin in the NFL, and we begin with my Detroit Lions. Um, boy, where to begin? Lions managed to end in a tie, 27-27, the game that they led 24-6, a game that they led 24-9, a game that they led 24-16 with not that much time left. Um, As per usual with this team, 40 years now, by the way, folks, 40 years. Um, All kinds of culprits in the collapse start with the coach. You can look at the offensive line, which I have sounded the alarm bells all offseason, all preseason, and lines Twitter don't want to hear it from me. Um, I hate to say it, but how you like me now? Because the Lions' offensive line, particularly their left tackle, Taylor Decker, and the right tackle, Rick Wagner, is awful. It's terrible. And to be fair to the three guys inside... Joe Dahl, left guard, Frank Ragnow, center, Graham Glasgow, right guard. Those guys actually were not bad. They weren't perfect, but they were not bad. But when both your tackles are subpar, it's a miracle the Lions scored as many points as they did. Decker in particular, with, I believe, seven pressures allowed, four penalties, and gave up at least two sacks, one of which resulted in a fumble, the Arizona recovered right after Lions had gotten a turnover of their own and were poised and set up in perfect position to, at minimum, kick a field goal, if not going for a touchdown. But I digress. Let's start with the timeout that basically negated the game that would have, the play that would have sealed the game for the Lions. Two minutes, 47 seconds left, third and five, about their own 40-yard line. Play clock's running down. Stafford, by the way, has been fantastic with this his whole career, particularly, let's say, the last five, seven years. Rarely do the Lions get called for for a delay of game. Very, very rare. And if that is, it's because the coaching staff doesn't get the damn call in uh, in time for Stafford, particularly if he goes to the line and then he wants to change the play based on what defense he sees. But in any event, play gets run. Apparently nobody heard the whistle. Lions actually bust a big play to recently sign J.D. McKissick, running back from formerly of Seattle. Plays an easy first down, probably gets 30 yards. That's it. The game's over, right? It was 2.47 left. That play, say, it took 10, 15 seconds to run. Uh, the next play will be a run. Two-minute warning stops the clock. The Lions are in field goal range. They're up eight points. So they probably maybe would have had to try to kick a field goal with not a lot of time left, Uh, even if Prater misses it, which, you know, I don't want to jinx the guy, but he's been one of the more reliable and better kickers in the NFL now since he's been in the league. 
whether it was with Denver or since he's been with Detroit, as evidenced by the 55-yarder he made on Sunday against Arizona that would have been good from 60, and then made his other one, made it all his extra points. Lions are winning that game. Except the coach panicked, told the offense coordinator to call timeout. They called timeout. Next play, for whatever reason, by the way, four vertical routes. Not one guy short as a safety valve on a play where, again, you only need five yards. Incomplete. Next play, pump block. Punt goes 11 yards. Arizona comes down and scores a touchdown. Of course, at that point in the game, there was no doubt in my mind that Arizona was going to convert the two-point conversion. I mean, there's no doubt. And the Lions had a chance to make a play on the, on, on the two-point convert. They had a chance to make a play on the touchdown. Justin Coleman, who up to that point had played very well, new high-priced corner that they signed from Seattle, uh, got picked, couldn't get over it, couldn't make the play. And then other side of the field, same thing. I think Tracy Walker, who had made some nice plays in that game, but also had a huge missed tackle on a third down, where he had the guy dead to rights in the backfield for a five-yard loss, and instead ended up in a 12-yard gain and a big first down that was their first touchdown drive for Arizona. Um, couldn't quite get over there to, to, to stop the receiver from the two-point conversion. But, I mean, I, if, if I could have instantly placed a bet of a million dollars, I'm not even joking, that Arizona was going to convert that two-point conversion, I would have done it. I would have done it. All right, maybe not a million. A thousand? Easy. Easy. This is the Lions. This is what they do. So the timeout, of course, huge. Also lost in the sauce here is the fact that the head coach still doesn't know what the hell he's doing in games. So there was a play earlier in the game where Arizona, uh, the quarterback, Kyler Murray, who looked atrocious for three quarters, Lions defense did a nice job harassing him, keeping him in the pocket mostly, batting balls down at the line of scrimmage because the guy's 5'9". So when they weren't getting a push, they just kind of stood there at the line of scrimmage and, and anticipated his passes. They knocked down four balls. They, look, they were great for three quarters. Of course, the fourth quarter is a total, complete collapse. Again, this is what the Lions do. So it's second and nine. Sorry, it's third and nine. He runs for the first down, short, slides short. Announcers on TV say she's going to be short of the first down. So it's going to be fourth and one. Arizona's going to have the ball their own, 35, 36. Except Arizona got called for legal formation. Rather than decline the penalty and make Arizona decide, okay, they're going to try to go for it on fourth and one inside, on their side of the 50, well inside at about the 36, where if they don't get it and you stuff them there, and the run, Lions run defense is supposed to be the, the strength of this team, now you're set up basically in, in Prater field goal range already. If you run three plays and get no yards, you're still in field goal range. Or you make them punt. Patricia takes the penalty, and of course the Lions give up like a 45-yard play on third and 14. I mean, again, you can't make this up. Yeah, Damian Amendola in overtime when the Lions got a reprieve and had a, an outside chance to get into F Prater field goal territory again, catch like a 15-yard pass on the sideline. Lions are, are only have one timeout, and he's right on the sideline. Instead of just going out of bounds, he cuts back up inside 
to do what? I don't know. And gets tackled. Forced the line to use the last time out, which pretty much screwed them from having any shot at moving the ball down the field in overtime and having to play for and take the tie. Damian Mandola would never do that when he was in the, on the Patriots. Never. But, of course, he put on a Lions uniform, and he forgets how to play football. And, again, he also had had a nice game up to that point. Had a 47-yard touchdown. Looked pretty good. I swear, I think... I, I, listen, the only thing I can think of is that these guys know that they're with a downtrodden franchise that has never enjoyed any success except for tiny small little pockets and therefore I guess they try to do too much I guess I don't know I, 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 I don't know I don't otherwise know how to explain idiotic behavior like this I mean it's just ridiculous Damn Amendola, 35 years old, heady veteran, one of the smartest players in the league, and then makes one of the dumbest plays you could possibly make. And you know, it's funny. 40 years has inured me to a certain extent. So I'm not even surprised at these outcomes anymore. I honestly don't even really get upset. I mean, I might for a second, but then I'm, I'm over it. Whereas even as recent as... What was that, five years ago? The Thursday night game against Aaron Rodgers, the Hail Mary. That's, that, that loss sat with me for a week. It, that doesn't happen anymore. But the way I watch the game generally is joyless. It's a joyless event because I'm always waiting for the other shoe to drop. And when I started watching this game on Sunday, I said, you know what? Don't watch the game that way anymore. Try to have some fun. Focus on the good. Tracy Walker, beautiful interception early in the game. Jalen Reeves-Mabin, who had been non-existent his first two years on this team. Two great special teams plays and look good playing linebacker also. Jelani Tavai, the second-round pick that I couldn't stand, had a sack, looked pretty good. Devin Kennard had three sacks. Justin Coleman and Rashawn Melvin, recently signed corners, were sticky in coverage for three quarters. They looked great. And so when it's 24-9, though, I still can't help it. So I say, all right, well, okay, let's see. Let's do the math. That's 15 points. So, okay, yeah, they're really only two scores down. Because what happened was it was 24-6. Arizona went to kick a field goal. And Dick Stockton and Mark Schlereth, who were doing the game, disagreed with the decision. And then the old me kicks in and goes, why, why? no, it makes perfect sense. Now they're only down two scores. Yes, they're going to need a two-point conversion, but they're going to get it if they need it. And, of course, that's what happens. I mean, it's just I can't help it. It's 40 years of this. As AG, as AG said to me on the phone after the game when I spoke to him, of course, he's very happy with his Cowboys. He said the Lions are the, the SD special delivery Jones <laughs> of NFL teams. And for those of you who are not wrestling fans from the 80s, let me explain the reference. SD Special Delivery Jones was a, uh, a wrestler who, they, you know, in, in wrestling, they had various, you know, characters. You had good guys and you had villains. And then you had superstar good guys, like, well, Hulk Hogan kept changing back and forth. But when Hulk Hogan was a good guy and Bob Backlund was a good guy and Jimmy Superfly Snooko was a good guy, you had stars that had a chance to, quote, unquote, win it all. And then you had 
next level guys underneath him, like ST Special Delivery Jones, who would fight a bad guy, and you'd think he was going to beat said bad guy, like a Don Morocco, say, who was a contender for the championship, and he'd always just about have him beat, and then there would be some sort of nefarious behavior by Don Morocco's manager where they would blind the referee with sawdust or something and then illegally pin SD and then they would come back and see until, you know, some, some silliness like that. But he always just on the verge of breaking through and then he never quite could get the job done. That's basically the lines. It's basically the lines. Now, the only thing I will say is that, on the positive side, is that, weirdly, as bad as the collapse was, as bad as calling the timeout was when you're about to seal the game, um, and the stupid penalties, I mean, line special teams, by the way, were an absolute horror show. Jamal Agnew fumbled a punt at the eight-yard line. Lions defense actually bowed up and held Arizona a field goal there. But Arizona was doing absolutely nothing. And that's the other thing, too. When the Lions went in at halftime 17-3, I was like, eh, you know, it looks good. But for the way that the Lions had dominated the Cardinals in the first half, I think Kyler Murray was like two for nine, this score should be a lot bigger than it is. But guess what? Because Jamal Agnew fumbled a punt. And after the Lions got a big turnover, they turned it over right back because Taylor Decker got beat like a drum by Chandler Jones. I mean, Stafford didn't have a chance. A lot of times I'm hard on Stafford when he fumbles after he gets sacked. Like if he holds the ball too long or doesn't display good pocket awareness. This was not that. This was here. It was a three-step drop, and all you got to do is – I mean, Taylor Decker, can you get a, lay a finger on a guy? Please, could you hold him up for half a second and give your quarterback a chance? No, he can't. Stafford had no shot on that. That was not his fault that he fumbled. Got totally blindsided because his left tackle is awful. The Lions fans on Twitter, you want to keep telling me what a genius Bob Quinn is though, right? How this offensive line has gotten worse and worse and worse since he's been here. Keeps tinkering, draft picks, free agents. It gets worse every year. For crying out loud, Greg Robinson, former bust from the Rams, who the Lions signed as a stopgap the year Taylor Decker was hurt, shut Chandler Jones out with no sacks two years ago. I'm not saying Chandler Jones is not a good player. He is. He's a fine player. But as a former first-round pick of not that many years ago, and Taylor Decker, you're also not you're also supposed to be a good player. You're not supposed to stink like this. I digress. The line special teams were awful. They kept some guy on the roster named D Virgin from Western Alabama who supposedly plays cornerback. Although if he ever sees the field as a cornerback, the line's gonna be in trouble. But they kept him solely for his special teams ability. Got called for two holding penalties that negated decent punt returns that ended up being about mm, about 40 yards worth total of total yards and penalties. That's always good. You love seeing guys are on the team for one reason and one reason only, and then not only are they not good at that thing, they cost your team. That's always good. 
Jamal Agnew, who was a revelation a couple of years ago as a returner, looked the, the times he actually did catch the ball, looked uh, tentative, did not look very good. I would actually make the move away from him right now. As bad as this offensive line is, they have enough weapons where just don't worry about trying to get returns. Just give me somebody back there that can catch the ball. Amendola's got short hands. Just let him be your punt returner and be done with it, please. So the special teams, other than Prater's kicking... And Sam Martin actually had a good game until the pump block, which was not his fault. That was Chris Harris, rookie safety from BC. Another guy who's on the team for ostensibly because of his special team's prowess, getting trucked back on not even a pump block set up by the Cardinals. Nobody goes for pump block at midfield. And he still couldn't block the guy. I mean, it's just ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It's just utterly ridiculous. Again, all this nonsense supposedly was going to stop when Bob Quinn got here and then Matty P. And it just always continues. Team shoots itself in the foot constantly. Now again, to be fair, there's talent on this team. Starts with the quarterback. And again, any of these knuckleheads out there that think the reason the Lions didn't win that game was because of Matthew Stafford, I mean, you're out of your minds. I mean, the touchdown passes he threw, he avoided pressure. He moved well in the pocket. He had two big runs, actually. One off a, a, a read option, even. I mean, when your quarterback throws for 380 yards, three touchdowns and no picks, you should win the game. Running game, fairly non-existent. You know, uh, also predicted by me, the Lions uh, insist on keeping a fullback on the roster, the most obsolete position in the NFL, by the way. And I knew it. I said it to Jim. I said it to anybody who would listen. Watch when the Lions in the first game of the year, in their first third and short, try to line up with three tight ends and a fullback, and they get stuffed. And that's exactly what happened. I mean, you cannot be dumber. Listen, other teams might be able to do that. This team can't because your offensive line isn't any good. They don't move anybody. The only way you're going to get time is through misdirection and trickery. Your offensive line is not physical. They don't get into people. They don't drive people. They get pushed around. You have to only, the only way they're going to win is with traps and pulls where they trick guys. If you try to play, and, and double teams, if they try to play guys head up, man to man, they're going to get trucked every single time. It's the softest offensive line I've ever seen. Guys constantly getting knocked back in the backfield like they're on roller skates. So when it's third and one, knock it off with the nonsense with the fullback who shouldn't even be on the roster. Oh, here you go. Let's just telegraph to the whole world what play we're going to run. We're going to line up with three tight ends and a fullback. Yeah, and we're going to shove it down your throats. Except, no, it never works. Again, competent NFL teams might be able to get away with that. The Lions cannot. See, now I got all angry. I was trying to keep it together. 
And now I got all angry. Because again, I just it's just so irritating and frustrating to see this stuff from afar, to predict this stuff months in advance, and then it all comes true. Of course, I can never predict anything good, right? That'll never happen. Again, if you want to take some positives out of this game, it's that after they collapsed, the, the, the Cardinals had all the momentum. They won the coin toss. The Lions miraculously held them to a field goal because, if, obviously, with the new over, fairly new overtime rules, they scored a touchdown. They win the game. If you hold them to a field goal, you get a chance with the ball. And the Lions were able to at least drive and get a field goal, the first possession of, their first possession of overtime. So in a weird way, See, after the Cardinals tied it and won the coin toss and got the ball, I chalked it up mentally as a loss. So the fact that it's actually a tie and not a loss, in a weird way, I kind of feel like it's a win. You know, you have to readjust your thinking based on current circumstances, right? Of course, going into overtime, I was furious. It felt like it was going to be a loss unless the Lions flat out won in overtime. But then after that turn of events, kind of felt like a win in a weird, strange way. Now, the Lions got San Diego coming up this week. Another team with two excellent edge rushers and Joey Bosa and Melvin Ingram. Um, Chargers defense, although, did not look all that great last week against the Colts. Gave up a lot of points. But the Chargers offense is good. Phillip Rivers, Austin Eckler, Keenan Allen, Mike Williams, Hunter Henry, they're going to be a handful. Game's at home, team coming across country some, somewhat. If the Lions can figure out a way to get that game, of course, you know, and look, I, I understand it's the first game of the year. It's This is what we do now. It's overreaction, in this case, Tuesday. We're going to get to some of these other games in a second and all the ridiculous overreactions taking place after one week. I get it. I'm just saying... Lines, it's not overreacting. This is 40 years worth, 41 years worth of, of, of data that I have to process. <laughs> All right, we'll take a short break. We'll be back with some more NFL right after this. Okay, we're back here on a Tuesday, Football Tuesday edition of Jamal About Sports. So some of the uh, other games of note from week one, uh, Baltimore-Miami, I mean, look, score was 59-10. You rarely see scores like that in the NFL. That's more like a college score. That's more like what Mike Maryland Terrapins, by the way, did to Syracuse, 63-20. to Thank you very much. But I digress. Uh, look, we all know Miami is atrocious. And when I say they're not even trying, that does not mean that the players are not trying. It means that the front office has not assembled good enough players to be competitive. So while these guys are out there busting their asses, okay, they, unfortunately, most of them are not quality NFL players, starting with Ryan Fitzpatrick, the quarterback. But it, it goes way deeper than just him. I mean, they have Josh Rosen. Apparently, I guess they either don't want to throw him to the Wolves or they don't like him that much. I don't know. But if you're going to be bad this year anyway, which they are, wouldn't you just play Josh Rosen? But anyway, I digress. Uh, Lamar Jackson had the game of his life. He looked like he did at Louisville if they were playing, you know, uh, a dregs of the, you know, ACC Wake Forest team or something like that, right? Five touchdowns. Uh, Marquise Hollywood Brown, the speedster from Oklahoma, 
uh, had a long touchdown. If you ever, and now everyone's going crazy. You know, Mar, uh, Lamar Jackson. Oh, not bad for a running back, huh? Ha ha ha. Yeah, they're all excited about this great new passing game. Go back if you watch even the highlights. Watch, look at, look and see how much time Lamar Jackson has to throw. Look, I'm not trying to rain on the kids' parade. I actually like Lamar Jackson. I didn't think he was a first-round pick. I thought he'd be more better suited as second or third-round pick, developmental guy. Okay, they won some games with him, some gimmicky running stuff last year. Look, he's a talented kid. He very well may turn into a good NFL quarterback. Let's not act like he's arrived now because of one good game, great game, against a terrible, terrible Dolphins team. I can assure you, if they were playing the Patriots this week, he's not thrown for any five touchdowns. So, you know, the overreaction, of course, cuts both ways, right? If your team loses, they're the worst team in the world. They're going on in 16. If a team wins and looks impressive in doing so, you know, they're now somehow the favorites to make the Super Bowl. I mean, it's, it's absurd. So let's just pump the brakes a little bit first here on the whole Lamar Jackson has arrived as a passing, as an elite passing quarterback now in a league. Okay. That's number one. Number two, you can almost say the same thing about the Cowboys. And look, I like Dak Prescott more than most, but um, did you see the time that he had against the Giants and uh, the fact that there weren't a Giants defender within about five yards of any of the Cowboys receivers? That was a, an awful performance by the Giants defense. Awful. And what is this idiocy not giving Saquon Barkley the ball and, and giving the ball to someone named Eli Penny on third and one when it's still a close or second and one when it's still a close game and throwing the ball on third and one? Idiotic. Idiotic. Now look, Dallas is a good team. I'm not saying they're not. I, 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 I picked them to win the division. But uh, Giants, y'all got to be better than that, son, as LT once said. I mean... Come on now. And I, I listen, I admit I've got some skin in the game, right? I predicted the Giants, I think, as a wild card. I secretly, I, I don't know, secretly, I openly root for them in addition to the Lions. I, I like the Giants. I love Saquon Barkley. They have Golden Tate now, even though he's still going to miss the, first, the next three games because of the suspension. One of my favorites from the Lions. But I don't know where the pass rush was non existent. Now, look, Cowboys have a very good offensive line. We know this. But, you know, that pass rush that I thought was going to be much improved did not show up. Again, it's week one. Remember in 07, the Giants gave up, I think, 58 points in the first two games. Spagnuolo's first year as their coordinator there, the first go-round. And they ended up going on and winning the Super Bowl. So let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater just yet. It's one game. It was in Dallas. You know, let's just everybody relax. Giants season's not over after week one. Now let's stay in New York slash New Jersey, and we'll go to the Jets' Bills. I mean, being a Lions fan and being a Bills fan, uh, sorry, being a Lions fan and being a Jets fan is essentially the same thing. Remember, I was both at one point. From about 1980, about 1980 to 1988, I was equally a fan of both franchises. That's what a masochist I am. Until the Gastineau late hit on Kozar in the playoff game against the Browns. And then I said, I cannot root for two teams that rip your heart out like this, particularly when I'm going to be away at school and I don't get to see any of these games on TV anyway. Plus, my father's a huge Lions fan, so let me just stick with that team and I'm going to give up the Jets. And, I mean, look, the Jets, the Jets 
didn't have a, a, a credible kicker in training camp. They signed a guy that supposedly was going to be good, but then he had an awful training camp for the Vikings, this car at Medvedic. He cost the Jets big time in a game that they lost 17-16, in a game that they led 16-0, and let tra- trash Josh Allen beat them late. And Sam Darnold did not look very good, missing open receivers. That Jets offensive line that I told you I didn't love got beat up pretty bad by the Bills. Now, Bills have a good front. Give them some credit. But you miss two extra points in a field goal in a game you lose by one. It's a problem. So now he's out, and now uh, Sam Ficken is in. Um, if you subscribe to the uh, unfortunate name theory that uh, if you're going to have a name like that, it's going to be real tough to be good. <laughs> I don't see things ending well for Sam Ficken as the Jets' place kicker. <laughs> I mean, it, it, you just... I mean, again, with the Jets, you just can't make... Now, look, Jets, very much, like I said, very much like the Lions. You saw a lot of things you like. C.J. Mosley looked great. They're big, high-profile, high-priced free agent, former stud middle linebacker from Baltimore. Had a pick six. Le'Veon Bell looked very good. But the Jets' secondary is a problem, which we talked about. Daryl Roberts, the, the, the corner starting opposite Tremaine Johnson, had a rough day. The Jets' pass rush was fairly non-existent. And, you know, you lead 16-0 late in the game. You, you got In the fourth quarter, you got to figure out – you got to win that game. At home, you got, you got to figure out a way to win against the Bills. Now, two more games to go. Then we'll get to this whole Antonio Brown nonsense. Cleveland, Tennessee. Now, I'll admit – I was got very high on Cleveland late last year. You got you, anybody's listened to the show before knows I was a big Baker Mayfield guy before the Browns drafted him. I thought he was the best quarterback out of that quarterback class. And they finished the year really strong last year. They have a lot of players that I like on that team, like Nick Chubb, Mayfield, Jarvis Landry. Now they got OBJ in the offseason. He's supposed to be a big, you know, the superstar. And they got this guy, and they got that guy on defense, Olivier Vernon, uh, whatever. And then everybody got very excited about the Browns. And the hype train was in full motion. And then they went and got smacked around and embarrassed by the Tennessee Titans on Sunday. Now, again, it's week it's one week. So let's not bury the Browns just yet. But as Delaney Walker, the venerable tight end from the Titans, said, y'all want to crown him? Crown him. Borrowing, of course, from Denny Green. But the Browns were who we thought they were. I mean, I'm sorry. If you're the Browns and you just went on 16 two years ago, Look, I understand you want to change the mindset. You want to be positive, whatever. There's a difference between having, you know, I, I understand in, in today's society, this is going to seem like a very quaint notion, but how about a little quiet confidence and actually going out and doing something first before you announce to the world how good you are? How about that? Interestingly enough, the Browns play the Jets on Monday night, by the way, in week two. Two kind of, uh, again, very early in the year, 
a little bit of a must-have game for both teams. And then finally, the game of the week, which was Houston-New Orleans last night, the early Monday night game, was absolutely tremendous. Got off to a little bit of a ragged start, and you're going to see a lot of that in the first couple of weeks of the year, particularly now with the recent advent of teams holding guys out for a lot of the preseason. If you have two fairly evenly matched teams, you're going to see a lot of feeling out. It's going to, the play's going to be a little ragged. Timing's going to be off. But once both those teams got kicked into high gear, boy, that game was super exciting to watch. And uh, the Saints got screwed again by the refs at the end of the first half. The, the refs bumbled and stumbled their way through a clock issue, costing uh, the Saints about 20 seconds worth of clock. And then they missed a 55-yard field goal at the end of the first half. Um, took the lead late. Looked like they had the game won. Then Houston went two, 75 yards in two plays and scored a touchdown on an absolute dart from Deshaun Watson to Kenny Stills, recently acquired from the Dolphins, to give them the lead. Well, sorry, hold on. To tie the game at 26-26. Sorry, 20. Yes. Right. Wait. Yes. No. Wait. What was the final score? To tie the game at 27. What was the final 30-28? They're, they're going to tie the game. Sorry, they're going to take the lead. They've tied the game at 27. Now they're going to kick the extra point to take the lead. Except the kicker misses the extra point. Except the Saints get called for roughing the kicker. <laughs> so they get to kick it again. He makes it. So now... Houston's got a lead 28-27 with 37 seconds left. Saints have one timeout. Get the ball back. Breeze gets them to the other team's 40-yard line. Zach, uh, not Zach Lutz. What's his name? Why can't I remember the kicker's name now? Kicker for the Saints, anyway. He's a very good kicker, by the way. Drills a 58-yarder to win the game. With no time left. Hell of a game. Hell of an ending. You got to see studs like DeAndre Hopkins from Houston on display. Alvin Kamara and Michael Thomas for the Saints on display. Drew Brees, Deshaun Watson. Um, it was just a very, it was, a, it was a, for the most part, a pretty well-played game and obviously extremely exciting ending. All right, now we get to the Antonio Brown nonsense, which, listen, uh, you know, for those who maybe have been living under a rock, um, basically, you know, uh, miscreanted his way, if that's even a word, act like such a selfish jackass with the Steelers his last couple of years that they couldn't take it anymore. They traded him to the Raiders in the offseason. Of course, the Raiders, you know, knowing full well all the baggage that he brings. This is a guy that live uh, streamed from, you know, did a Facebook Live in a post-game pre uh, locker room when Mike Tomlin was giving a talk. Like, you just, that, that everyone in the world knows you don't do that. The locker room is a sacred thing. You don't let people in unless it's authorized by the league and or the team. I mean, it's absurd. Right? There, there's specific times where the locker room is closed to the, mat, the media and the press and the public, and then there are times when it's open to the press and the public and the media. So, I mean, 
that, that was already probably five years ago. Right? Then you had, you know, all the holdout. Now, listen, he, he's just, he's been a selfish diva to the nth degree for years now. Wasn't like this always. When he first came in the league as a, you know, little-known sixth-round pick out of Central Michigan, he just was a stud. And, you know, now he's decided that, you know, he's his own brand man, and he's going to live-tweet everything and put everything on social media and share his entire life. And then, of course, you had the added mix of the Raiders being on hard knocks, and, and then, of course, the Raiders being the Raiders, where, I mean, yeah, Antonio Brown's a diva. Uh, they have a diva wide receiver. They have a diva head coach in John Gruden. I mean, talk about an absolute fool. Again, this is a guy who believes his own press clippings, thinks because he got lucky in a Super Bowl 15 years ago, however long ago it was, because he went from the Raiders to Tampa Bay, and they had all the Raiders plays, and the Raiders never really changed their play calls. And so the Tampa Bay with Brad Johnson beat up on a Rich Gannon-led Raiders team. Other than that, the rest of his track record in Tampa, very mediocre. Sat was out of football for years, was an annoying-as-hell announcer, but he's Chucky. That's his brand, man, right? So he don't want any stars on a team bigger than him. He's the biggest star. I'm John Gruden. Don't you know who I am? And then you throw in Mike Mayock, who, another one who believes his own BS and press clippings, who went from humble, you know, high, New Jersey high school reporter to fairly entertaining and insightful draft analyst to overbearing and insufferable NFL draft analyst to now he's the GM of the Raiders and he's another one who should be thrilled he has a job and yet he's going to peacock around too. So, I mean, three, three guys that could not deserve each other any more than Antonio Brown, John Gruden and Mike Mayock. So, then you had the whole uh, thing with the helmet. Antonio Brown didn't want to play because he, they wouldn't let him use his old helmet, even though his helmets aren't regulation anymore. Then he got fined because he missed a couple of practices. He, he made that public, complained about that, then apparently got into a shouting match with Mike Mayock. Then he apparently delivered, and then they were going to suspend him for the Monday night game. Then he delivered an impassioned plea to the team and the team captains and apologized, and so then Gruden, of course, acquiesced and folded like a, like a cheap tent and said, okay, yeah, well, I guess he is going to play on Monday. And then Antonio Brown then decided he was going to go on Twitter again and say that he didn't want to be with the Raiders anymore. So then the Raiders finally said, fine, peace out, you're out. And I heard all of this on Saturday afternoon after I just played in a qualifying match for my club championship. I know, can anything sound more bougie? But anyway, and the first thing out of my mouth to the guy that told me was, well, you know the Patriots are going to sign him now, right? I mean, I, again, I'm not even patting myself on the back here. I, I mean, it, it was, it, could anything be more predictable? It's just like when LeGarrette Blount quit on the Steelers a few years back because he didn't like the fact they wouldn't get enough carries, and he had been on the Patriots before, and he went back to the Patriots. Somewhat similar to Randy Moss when he quit on the Raiders all those years ago and then, of course, found himself on the Patriots. Or when Corey Dillon, who was always a miscreant and a bad apple in Cincinnati, but then he shows up in the Patriots and all of a sudden he's a model citizen. I mean, it, it, this has been going on for years. 
So, I mean, it, it did not take uh, a genius to figure out exactly where Antonio Brown was going to go, which, by the way, begs the question and makes one wonder. Perhaps this was his plan from the get-go because the Steelers in no way, shape, or form were going to trade Antonio Brown to the Patriots, whom the Steelers see probably outside of the Ravens as their biggest competition in the AFC because the Steelers can never beat the Patriots, whether it's in a regular season or the playoffs. They can never get past them. So I don't blame the Steelers for not doing business with the, with the Patriots. Yeah, it's funny. I don't understand all these teams that want to make trades with the Patriots. Why, why do you want to keep helping them out? Including my team, by the way. So now, of course, he's with the Patriots. And, of course, the Patriots went out and smacked the Steelers around and made them look silly. And even, you know, again, Philip Dorsett, former bust first-round pick from the Colts, of course, now all of a sudden he looks like a stud. And Josh Gordon, another guy who's had all kinds of issues, somehow got reinstated even though he was, he was supposedly banned from the league two years ago. But somehow now that he's on the Patriots, I guess he gets a, a fifth chance. So he's back in the league. He looked great. You know, Brady, of course, looked great. Steelers looked a mess. I mean, it's just... And where is the commissioner? I mean, you know, I, I mean, I understand, Patriots fans, you think the league has it in for you. But, I mean, the fact that this is allowed to go on is a joke. And, yes, I understand you could say, well, any other team could have signed them. Yeah, I guess that's true. I guess that's true. But the interesting thing is that no other team wants him because he's toxic. But for some, for some reason, well, you know, it'll be very interesting to see. Because that is, of course, the assumption here is that he's going to just get right in line like everybody else does up there in New England, right? And everything's going to be hunky-dory. Let's see if that actually happens. It would be, I think it would be really poetic justice if, if the hubris finally of the Patriots catches up to them and this clown is the guy that brings that franchise down, at least for a year. Although... Well, what's the worst that could happen? What are they going to do? They, if he starts acting up, they will just cut his ass. And then nobody will pick him up. Although supposedly Seattle was interested. It's another place where they like to you know, take chances on guys that have had issues other places. But, I mean, the, honestly, look, Antonio Brown, when he actually just plays, top five wide receiver in the league. I mean, he's, he's a special talent. And he, and he plays hard. I mean, he doesn't take plays off. I mean, it's similar to Odell in that respect. There's a lot to like about – there's everything to like about how he behaves on the field as far as playing. But all the off-the-field stuff is just insane. And speaking of Odell, is this guy the biggest jackass on the planet? I mean, he's just so irritating. You saw – now apparently it's down to 190. First, supposedly he wore a watch – in the game, I remember Reggie, I think it was Reggie Roby, wore a watch as the punter for the Dolphins way back when, and was right, and rightfully so, by the way, ridiculed beyond belief for it, right? Like, only a punter could get away with wearing a watch because he's barely even a football player, and blah, 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 blah. Supposedly, Odell Beckham wore a, at first I saw one report, it was a $350,000 watch. Then I saw it was a $250,000 watch. Now I just see it's only, quote unquote, a $190,000 watch. He wore it in the game, and of course the NFL said, eh, shouldn't do that. And of course now he's going to be defiant because he has to do it. Because guess what? I'm a, I'm a do me. 
I'm a millennial and I'm a do me, man. Because that's how we do. That's what we do. That's who we are. Yeah, you really need to wear a... I mean, first of all, why you would wear a watch playing football is beyond me. I mean, it makes no sense. You know where they wear watches? Tennis and golf. That's about it. I mean, again, the, just the, 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 state, the overall state of affairs is tough to take sometimes, I have to say. I mean, listen... You call me a grumpy old man all you want. There's absolutely no earthly reason that a pro football player should be wearing a watch. I don't care if it's a $10 watch or a $190,000 watch. They should not be wearing a watch whilst playing an NFL game. All right, short break. Back with some baseball right after this. All right, we are back on our last segment here before we wrap up another NFL Week 1 recap. Um, Metsies. So, it would look like the Metsies are pretty much done. Talk last Tuesday needed to go... Whoa, 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 geez. A lot has happened in a week. So, we talked that last Tuesday. Mets had that game against the Nationals where DeGrom pitched against Scherzer. And I said if they could just keep it close, get into the Nationals' bullpen and, you know, squeak one out... Well, the Mets scored 10 runs. They had a 10-4 lead going in the ninth inning and managed to lose the game. Um, Mickey Calloway decided to bring Paul Seawald in. I understand it's a six-run lead. Paul Seawald's not a major league caliber pitcher. Been saying it all year. He started to get in trouble. He gave up four runs. They brought in Avalon. He couldn't do the job. Diaz comes in on an 0-2 pitch, gives up a walk-off home run to Kurt Suzuki, the backup catcher. I mean, you can't make this up. Just a devastating, horrible loss because they had won the night before. And then, to their credit, they came back and won the next day. They played on Wednesday, and they won. They were off Thursday. They beat the Phillies Friday, and then they lost Saturday and Sunday. Looked bad in doing it. They got shut out by a bad Drew Smiley on Saturday. They had base runners all over the place early in the game, couldn't get any runs home. Stroman finally imploded after his tiptoeing through the raindrops his first couple innings, continuing his string of not being very good. That trade's looking worse and worse by the day. Of course, Anthony Kay, the kid they traded for, uh, uh, to the Blue Jays for Stroman, made his major league debut the same night, pitched well, five and two-thirds, two runs, eight strikeouts against Tampa Bay, good team. Um, and then Sunday, Syndergaard pitched, did not pitch particularly well. Mets had a 4-1 lead. They blew it. Bullpen came in and imploded again. Mets lost that game 10-7. Very sloppy. J.D. Davis had a horrible play the, the, the night before with a drop pop-up in left field. Again, not his fault. It's not a left fielder. I understand it's a routine play. He should make it, and he's made that play a million times. Uh, I, I can't get mad at the guy. The guy's got a bunch of huge hits for the Mets this year. He's had a monster second half. It's one of the few things that Brody Van Wagenen has done right. So they come back last night against Arizona, start of a four-game series, and if the Mets have any prayer of getting into the making the wild card, they have to sweep this series. Three out of four is not getting it done. Split absolutely doesn't get it done. But I don't even think three out of four gets it done. Have to sweep. So they had DeGrom on the mound again last night. They scored all of three runs. Two came on solo home runs by Alonzo. So he's up to 47 home runs, by the way. So the 52 of Aaron Judge 
to tie the rookie record is, is, is within striking distance with 19 games to go. Uh, but DeGrom was great. Seven innings, one run he gave up. Old friend Wilmer Flores, who very nice moment in the game. Mets, gave, Mets fans gave him a standing ovation. He tipped his, his batting helmet to the crowd. Then he gave a little wink out to DeGrom, who laughed for a second and then realized, uh-oh, I better bear down. And in his first at-bat, he did get him to, to, to ground out routinely to shortstop. But then the next inning, Wilmer hit a home run off, and Wilmer's been red hot lately. And good for him. I mean, one, one, of the, one of the better Mets of all time, just in terms of just being a sweet, reserved, nice kid, guy who spent his whole, major, his whole professional career with the Mets. I mean, the Mets drafted him out of Venezuela when he was 16. Mets were all he knew. That's why he was crying when he thought he got traded in 2015. And then you know the whole story after the trade didn't go through, and then the next game that they played, or two, that, that, the two games later, he hit the walk-off home run against the Nationals. That's when the Mets started getting rolling that year, when they overtook the Nationals and won the division. He got a bunch of big hits for the Mets when he was here. Very good, useful, spare part, part-time player. Really should be a DH full-time in the American League. But he still is a useful player because he can hit. So it was nice to see that. That was a nice moment. And then Lugo came in and was lights out again. i got to give him credit. Two perfect innings. Struck out four guys in the two innings. DeGrom was lights out. Three hits, one run, 11 strikeouts. Mets get the win. They've got to win these next three games against Arizona. Then they get the Dodgers coming in. That's not going to be easy. Because now the Dodgers have had a little bit of a dip here recently, and the Braves just keep rolling. So the Dodgers, what, 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 what seemed like the Dodgers had a lock on home field is not necessarily the case now. So it's not like the Dodgers are going to be resting guys. And I said this last week. Even if they do, quote, unquote, rest guys, Dodgers bench is as good as half the Major League Baseball starting teams anyway. So, you know, if they sit Max Muncy and they play – you know, Corey Seager, like, it's not a big deal. Or Justin Turner, and then Max Muncy plays third. Or, you know, Bellinger plays right field, and somebody else plays first. I mean, it's just that they're an extremely deep team. I mean, the thing about DeGrom that's insane. So since May 20th, he's 6-3. and three. <laughs> Right, he's made he's made since sorry since May twenty second he's made twenty starts he's six and three with like a two point two ERA in a season where balls are flying out right and left right runs are up everything's up and then he's only six and three and the Mets in his career starts are something like fifteen games under five hundred and he's got like a two ERA it's insane it's just insane whether it's Blowing that game last week where they had a six-run lead. By the way, this year in Major League Baseball up to that point in the season last week when that happened, teams were 274-0 when they had a six-run lead or better going into the ninth inning. And in the Mets franchise history, they started in 1962. The Mets were something like 804-0 when they had a lead by six or more in the ninth inning of a game. And yet they figured out a way to mess that up. And I've said it a million times, and I'll say it again. Listen, I give Callaway credit for keeping the team positive and upbeat, but his in-game decisions are atrocious. 
You know, he brought Lugo in that game when the score was 6-4. And then the Mets erupted for another four runs due to some sloppy play by the Nationals. So then he took Lugo out. Well, at this late date in the year, when your margin for error is zero, you cannot, you just, you don't worry about tomorrow the night before. Go get the win. Let Lugo pitch. He'd only thrown 10 pitches, by the way, the one inning he did pitch. Let him pitch the next inning and get the win, and you worry about tomorrow, tomorrow. You know, I don't want to hear, oh, well, these guys should be able to protect a six-run lead. No. Have you watched the Mets bullpen other than Seth Lugo and Justin Wilson this year? Mickey, they all have been awful. Paul Seawald's not any good. I'm sorry. Seems like a nice guy. He's a classic 4A guy. He's good at AAA. He's not a major league pitcher. He's just not. You know, Daniel Zamora's not a major league pitcher. And Familia and Diaz have been confoundingly bad this year. I mean, Diaz has 80-something strikeouts and 50-something innings. It's in, and yet he gives up, he's given up 14 ninth-inning home runs this year. I don't even think he, I think he gave up nine home runs the whole season last year. And then every time they, they give you a glimmer, right, Familia or Diaz, you think, okay, finally, these guys got to straighten out. And then you bring them in a tough spot, and they're a disaster. I, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. It really is unreal. It happened again the other day. Now the Mets ended up coming back and win on Friday night. Diaz gave up a home run again to blow the lead. Now, fine, thankfully there, but then he struck out the side. Gave up a blue pit to Segura, an 0-2 pitch home run to uh, Riamulto on a hanging slider, and then struck out the side. And the Mets ended up coming back and winning because the Phillies' bullpen was even worse. They went two outs and nobody on, single hit batsman, single walk. Ball game, Mets, thank you. But, I mean, it's just insane. And, by the way, Justin Dunn, the pitcher the Mets traded, along with Jared Kalanick, the stud center fielder, who's going to end the year at AAA and probably be the Mariners' opening day center field next year, uh, Justin Dunn was a pitcher in that trade for Cano and Diaz. He's making his major league debut, I believe, tonight. So that trade looks worse and worse because Cano stinks. I know he looked fairly decent his first couple games off the DL. He was awful last night, hitting two, two double plays, I believe. Had a runner on second and nobody out. Couldn't even move the runner to third. Now, the Mets ended up winning the game. But, again, even if Cano is decent, he's 36, going to be 37 next year. You know he's going to probably constantly be hurt, which will probably be a good thing for the team because they're better without him. And Diaz has obviously been an absolute horror show. So that trade looks worse by the day. The Stroman trade, and I understand it's early with the Stroman trade. It's seven starts, but he's not looked very good. And it's interesting. I heard Buck Martinez, who does, former Blue Jays catcher, who does the Blue Jays games. So he's seen a ton of Stroman. And I heard him on with Mike, with Mike, uh, with, Mike with Mad Dog Russo on Chris's uh, High Heat show on MLB Network. And he said he was worried about that trade for Stroman from the beginning because he, he loves, he feeds on adrenaline, but he thought he might try to do too much. And when he tries to do too much, his ball doesn't sink as much, it doesn't move as much, he overthrows, and I think that's what you're seeing now. So hopefully he can get that under the control. Now look, he doesn't have great stuff, but he has good enough stuff. Again, the guy managed to have an, a sub-three ERA in the American League and in the American League East 
where you got to pitch against the Yankees and the Red Sox and Tampa Bay. So I'm not willing to declare that trade a bust just yet, but the Robinson Cano, Edwin Diaz for Jared Kalanick and Justin Dunn trade certainly looks like that is a bust. Having said that, I would not get rid of Diaz. Because A, you're not going to get anything for him. B, you can't have Lugo be the closer because he can't pitch back-to-back days. And you might need Lugo to move in the starting rotation next year if Zach Wheeler's not back on the team. And as we, again, as we've seen, it's not like Diaz's stuff isn't there. It's not like he was throwing 99 last year and now he's throwing 90. He's still at 98 to 100. At times, a slider is a wipeout slider. And I don't want to. I don't. I also don't subscribe to this theory that he can't pitch in New York. Listen, I understand he doesn't speak English, but the kid stands at his locker after every single disaster, with his interpreter, granted, but he doesn't speak English, and answers all the questions, and doesn't make excuses. I think his head is fine as far as being able to pitch here. Now he's probably shell shocked right now. His confidence is probably shot, but that could come back. But I don't think he's intimidated by New York. I think he's having a horrendous year, and he doesn't know which way is up right now. All right, that's going to do it for tonight's show. As always, thanks for listening. Check us out wherever you get your podcasts. You can also check us out on Twitter, at Jamal about Sport and OS. Until next week, peace out.